you will, I'll invite you to open to your Bibles to John chapter 11 again, to a familiar story, one we began looking at last week, and this week we'll look at the, oh, well, not quite the sequel, but as uh, the late Paul Harvey used to say, the, the rest of, of the story. We'll begin our reading in verse 17 this morning and read through verse 44. Some of that is uh, ground we covered last week, uh, but it's necessary for us to uh, cover that ground again to give us the best understanding uh, of what God would have us to see uh, in what he's recorded for us in this passage. John 11, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose and quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with Mary in the house consoling her, saw that Mary uh, rose quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer that he may speak to us through these words. Father, we do come this day and ask that you would speak through your word and and by your spirit. And just as we have this week and to this morning gone from a period of, of warmth and comfort to frozen and needing to be thawed out this morning, Uh, So do our hearts that alternately go from on fire uh, to flickering, to cold and needing to be renewed. Father, thaw out our hearts and our minds that you may speak to us by your spirit and that the word of truth that you have given us through this account might give us hope, courage, joy, and love for you as we see how you love us. Bless us, we pray, in Christ and in Christ's word. Amen. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That's the key question that Jesus asked of Martha. But what we need to recognize is that it is not just a question that is directed at Martha, but it is somewhat of a universal question. Because like Martha, every one of us in this life experiences suffering. Every one of us experiences death. Not just the death that comes to us all at some time, but somewhere along the line in our lifetimes, we lose the people that are around us through death. And even when those situations may be seeming rare, each of us also experiences death in other ways through the brokenness or the loss of relationships or jobs or hopes or dreams. Each of these things, when they come into our lives, feels like little deaths. And to those of us who have experienced that kind of suffering, and we are aware of it, Jesus makes this declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. And he poses this question, do you believe this? Australian Bible scholar Leon Morris writes about this passage, Jesus' teaching about the resurrection and life is not simply an interesting piece of information. It is a challenge to faith. Whenever anyone sees that Jesus is the resurrection and life, he is challenged to do something about it. And what we're challenged to do when we are confronted with this claim that Jesus makes, that I am the resurrection and the life, is we are challenged to faith, challenged to believe it. Or in that challenge, it becomes evident that we are not believing it. That's the challenge to our faith that comes in this particular declaration. And so one of the things that we need to see from that key statement is that Jesus is prompting us to ask ourselves a question now and anytime we think of him being the resurrection and the life, am I believing this declaration? Now, in our account, Martha responds somewhat with a a mixture of faith and also of resignation that many of us are also probably familiar with. And she says, yes, I, I believe. The context there, the Greek that she's using, she's is, is in the, the perfect tense, which means she's thinking back something that has taken place in time before she has believed. And as she's considering Jesus questioning her, do you believe this? And she's saying, and I, I am continuing to believe. I still believe. But 
you can easily imagine as she's answering that question, she's definitive about the past, and right now she's asking herself, am I believing into this? And it's really an indication of the way that any of us ought to process this because the belief that Jesus is calling us to is not just that we made some declaration at a point in time, but is an ongoing belief, a functional belief. The question is, am I believing that at the moment? Because what we need to understand from this particular passage is that the comfort that we all need, particularly in times of suffering and in loss, the comfort and the hope that we need begins with the conviction that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And that comfort comes to us through that conviction that Jesus is the promised Messiah, even if we don't necessarily understand all the implications that accompany that faith. But that still is the root. That comfort and that hope comes to us through the belief of that declaration, even if we have no idea of what God might be doing in our life or in the world that is around us. But the root and the promise is found in the way that we respond, whether we are believing into that promise that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, in the text before us, after that discussion that Martha has with Jesus. She goes back to the house to find her sister Mary there. Mary is at the house, but she's not alone. We're told that uh, scores of people had come from all around, even from the city of Jerusalem, a couple of miles away, to bring comfort to the sisters as well as to, to mourn with them. And so that was both out of compassion, it was also out of tradition and ritual because in, in that culture you had professional mourners, professional wailers, and so wherever there was a funeral they would go and hang out. It seems kind of morbid to me, but that was their, their culture. And so you had kind of that mixture of people, and even those who were professional, it's not that they didn't have any compassion, but it was just their thing, that's what they did. And so whatever the makeup was, you had these scores of people that were in the house with Mary, and it's interesting that Mary remained in the house. As we looked at this passage last week, uh, we indicated if you're, if you're familiar with Mary and, and Martha, Mary in other accounts, uh, it tends to be very outgoing, very vibrant, and yet here she's resigned. When Martha goes out, she stays at home. Some commentators say that in this passage, we see in her uh, indications that she was experiencing a level of depression, which may be understandable. Her brother had just died. And others would point out that some of her depression is caused by a disappointment in God, a disappointment in, in Jesus, which may be evident in the expression that she utters to him when they meet that we'll look at in just a moment. But regardless of what Mary was feeling, she's kind of there. And Martha goes back and said, the teacher is here and he's, he's looking for you. Mary gets up and heads out the door. And we're told, somewhat amusing, I, I think, uh, is that all the people not knowing what, where she was going, they assumed she was going to the tomb and she was going to go cry there, so they were going to go cry with her there. Uh, they, they went out, and yet Mary came to where Jesus was. And when Mary gets to Jesus, her first words are exactly the same as Martha had expressed in, in the passage earlier in the passage. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, in those words, there's a powerful declaration of belief in, in the power of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, is the Christ, is the Messiah, and he has power over life and death. 
But there's something that's missing in what Mary says that's different than what Martha said. Martha made that statement and then finished on and finished up by saying, nevertheless, I believe that whatever you ask of God, God will do. And so she's reminding herself of what she does know. Mary just kind of leaves it there. And, And I do believe that it indicates that she's dealing with the level of disappointment in Jesus, even though she believes and knows, understands that Jesus is God. Now, that's an important thing for us to note because a lot of Christians that I know, and it seems the longer somebody's been a Christian, the the more uh, likely they are to fall into this trap. They assume that it's wrong to be disappointed with God, and so when they are disappointed with God, they either will deny it or they feel all the worse when they recognize that that's the way they're feeling. I think that with Mary here, not experience any kind of correction, nobody in this past is suggesting Martha's way is superior. There's an incredible freedom for you and for me at times when life is not going the way we want. And we are experiencing loss and suffering because of that. To be very free and open and expressing our disappointment with God. God is capable of handling it. But it's that openness that enables us to actually be transformed and find the hope that we, that we really desperately need. And I think that we see that here in this passage in Mary. Jesus responds to her after the conversation or part of the conversation, really looking at others, where have you laid him? And then everyone makes their way over to the tomb. Some of the people that were gathered around are impressed with the compassion that Jesus shows. And others ask, I think, a very appropriate and understandable question. They may be skeptical, but their question is valid. Couldn't he who enabled the blind man see have prevented this man whom he loves from dying? In other words, they believe so far, but they're also skeptical because of the apparent absence and Jesus' absence of action. And as we explore this passage, one of the things I want us to do is to note three key phrases here. Those Those phrases will serve as the outline of the passage. But as we look at the outline and those passages, those phrases, we'll also see the way God addresses our hurts and sorrows in ways that we may not always recognize. The first key phrase is, Jesus wept. We see it in verse 35, verse 34. We see after Jesus asked where they laid him, and they said, come see And so as they get to the tomb, Jesus, we can imagine him standing there in front of the tomb, Jesus weeps. Now, before we move on, I I will just say this. If you've ever struggled with Bible memory or you just don't think you can do it, I I would encourage you to begin with this, the shortest verse in the whole Bible. In fact, in the first service, I suggested something, and I'll do it again. I suggest we all just take a moment and memorize this verse together. Jesus wept. See, now every one of you can go home today and say, I know at least one Bible memory verse. I have, have that one. And this one is far more pregnant than perhaps that we recognize. 
One of the things we need to recognize in the fact that Jesus wept, I think the idea of weeping, particularly when you consider that there are professional weepers there, they're going and, you know, I don't know if they're crocodile tears or not, is that it doesn't give the force that really should be conveyed here as to what Jesus was doing because of what Jesus was feeling. In fact, one Bible scholar says that what we really need to see is the word here is Jesus bawled. Jesus' heart was broken and the emotion was welling up within him. And so he was bawling in a way that, you know, some cultures, our culture would say, it's just not appropriate for a grown man. But that's what Jesus was doing in response to the circumstance that he is seeing the death of his friend and the, and the agony of the, the people who are around him. But if you're familiar with the story, I wonder this. Have you ever asked yourself or ever wondered why Jesus was crying? I mean, he, he knew what was going to happen next. I mean, it's sad that the guy's dead, but, you know, if I went to a funeral of a good friend, but I knew, you know, in a few minutes I'm going to go say, everybody be quiet, stand up, and then we would all walk out and have dinner together, I probably wouldn't be crying. I probably wouldn't be that upset. But yet Jesus, that was the purpose for which he came. In fact, it was the purpose for which he delayed coming. He wanted to make sure that when he got there, everybody knew that God was at work. And so Jesus had no doubts that, uh, that Lazarus was going to rise and he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And, and yet Jesus is standing before the tomb and he's bawling. He's crying. Why? And I wouldn't presume to be able to give you the definitive answers, but as I, as I look at this passage, I, I, I ask myself these questions, all of which would be plausible reasons for, for Jesus to be weeping. The first is this, is that Jesus is looking at this tomb and being faced with not only one who is dead, but the, the pain and the agony that it causes those who are left behind. And he's reminded, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it was when I designed it, when I spoke the earth into existence, when the first people were, uh, were put into this world. This is not the way it was then, back in the, the only real good old days. It was perfect. There was no death. Death didn't enter into this world until those first people messed it up for everybody. And in their disobedience, brought death in as the inevitable consequence because the wages of sin is death. And so while they messed it up for everybody, you can't pass the buck because we all contribute to it. We all deserve it anyway. And so it's not hard for me to imagine that Jesus is looking at this and says, this stinks. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And when he compares what he created to what he has come to redeem, it is gut-wrenching. It may be that he saw at that tomb a foreshadowing of his own death that is very short to come. We are, certainly I, just easily envision Jesus to be incredibly stoic about his coming death. When he declares certain things like, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down only to take it back up again. And he is so forceful with his disciples when they're trying to avoid this death. He says, no, this is the way, this is what, for what I was, this is why I was born. I mean, statements of bravery. We can't forget that the night before Jesus died, he was sweating blood, which, as I understand, indicates he was feeling quite a bit of stress and dread about what he was about to endure. There was the physical pain. 
There was the anguish of being rejected and hated and despised by the people, including some who had actually been his friends. And there was the awareness that for a time, he was going to be separated from God. That would make one cry. It may be the unbelief that was around him. I mean, he had told everybody that he was going to raise Lazarus. This isn't going to end in death. And then he tells Martha, I, you know, your, your brother's going to, is going to rise. But who's going to believe that? And unbelief, our unbelief causes anguish to God. Maybe it was the mixed emotions that he had about bringing Lazarus back into this world. I mean, Lazarus had gone, and as one who was loved by God, he's already in paradise. And so, you know, he's there. I don't know what it's, what it's like, but he's there in paradise. And now he's going to be brought back into this broken world where he's guaranteed to experience heartache, pain, suffering, and trials. Because we all have it. It's just common to this life. Whether any of those are part of the reasons that Jesus is crying in, in, in the, just the, the, the mixture of emotions that all of us who are human have at any given time. One that I am quite certain that led him to tears is his compassion. So he looked at Martha and he looked at Mary as those he loved. And even the others who were around Jesus had empathy for them. He was feeling their pain, their loss. And because they were suffering so much, it made him cry as well. And I think this is important for us because when we are in the midst of intense pain and suffering, it's not uncommon for us to wonder, where is God when it hurts? Where is God in this? Does God even care? And I think what we see before us in Jesus, who is the exact image, he is God who has come in the flesh. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus and how he responds to circumstances. We see that in the midst of suffering of those he loves, Jesus balls, which means Jesus cares. In fact, the fact, that, the fact that Jesus came is an indication that Jesus cares, because it would have been very easy for God, and most religions think their gods would act this way in the first place, to remain aloof up in the heavens, untouched by the pains of this earth, and they just kind of dictate things from, apart, from afar and, and maybe through some mediators. But our God, took on flesh, became like us, entered into this broken world, leaving paradise, experienced every pain imaginable in this world in order to redeem a people for himself. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, we have one who in every way has been tempted as we are, and yet he without sin. See, Jesus came and he identified, and when he came, he wept over what we are experiencing. And in the midst of your suffering or the suffering who is around you, we may not know the why, we may not know what God is doing, we may not know anything else at this point, but what is illustrated very clearly in this account, in that two-word verse that you all memorized, 
Jesus wept means God cares. And that alone is an important perspective to hold in the midst of our suffering. Next phrase. We see in verse 39, remove the stone. See, while Jesus was standing there, and whether it's he gathered, gathered himself together or whether he speaks that out, kind of choking it out through his tears, we don't know. But that's Jesus' instruction to those who were gathered. And Martha objects, as we would certainly, and we certainly understand that. Martha says, look, Lord, it's been four days. It's going to stink by now. One of the things we need to understand just on the, on the length in Jewish rabbinic tradition, the, they, it wasn't taught, it was taught, but not from any authoritative sources, but this is what they believed is that the soul would hang around with the body for three days, but on the fourth day, I guess in the morning, he packed his bags and left for good. And, and so there's a significance of the fact that they're reminding him, it's been four days, and Jesus was very well aware of that. He didn't come until, to do, able to do anything until the fourth day for a, a very important reason. And he tells us so that people would know that God is, is, at, is at work here. But it also tells us something else that's important here too, is that if there is a stink, the stink is an indication that Lazarus was really dead. I mean, that's what happens to bodies after a few days. And so what we don't have here is a ancient version of Wesley from Princess Bride, who is only mostly dead. He is all dead, dead, dead. And one of the things that's very important is Miracle Max is correct. There's a big difference between mostly dead and dead, dead. And they understood this. And Jesus didn't come until everybody knew that he wasn't mostly dead, that he was dead, dead, all dead. And while everybody else was looking at the tragedy, Jesus was looking at the opportunity. Not just to glorify himself, but only because him being glorified is the hope that those people had, that we have, that anyone has. And so now that everybody knew that he was dead, dead, Jesus declares to them who were saying, you know, it's going to stink, which means keep it locked up. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Every time I read that verse, my mind automatically goes to that, that scene that most of you probably are familiar with from the movie Apollo 13. You got two administrators, I think one of them is from the government and is coming and talking with the NASA administrator and they're talking and just one of them says to the other, is they, they have no idea how to get the spacecraft back in. They, they just, you know, they know what happens scientifically. They just, they don't have answers and, and here's the consequence. This is gonna be the worst thing that ever happened to the space program. And then Ed Harris playing Gene Kranz turns around to them and says, with all due respect, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. Failure is not an option. It's kind of with that intensity that Jesus is speaking here and saying all the people who, and he's feeling their pain. It's not like he's oblivious to it. But he's saying, look, remember what I've told you. If you believe, you will see the glory of God and then this tragedy will be finest hour because you will see the glory of God. And then we know what happens. But even before we move to what happens at that point, just think about it for a second, what Jesus says there. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. What an odd statement. 
See, for most of us and for most of the world, the issue is, you know, seeing is believing. When I see it, I will believe it. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite here. If you believe, only if you believe, you will see it. Now, he's not saying whatever you can concoct in your mind if you believe something's going to happen, because there's a reality that's going to take place. But in the spiritual dimension of what God is going to do to see the glory of God doesn't come because it's been proven to us. Jesus is saying we see the glory of God when we believe the promises of God that are rooted in the person of Jesus. Again, before we move on, I want us to see something else too because it's not just a matter of seeing the glory of God, but this does relate to our own lives as well in a different way. What we need to understand is this, is that before God does something, he often says, open up the problem. And our instinct is to be a lot like Martha, whether our problems are our suffering or especially when our problems are our sin, we know our sin stinks. We want our problems buried deep, can't be opened. We want our problems solved but without having to expose them, without having to deal with the fact that they stink. We don't want anybody else to smell our sin either. What I think is illustrated here, a principle that is true throughout the scriptures is this that it's necessary for us to recognize the stink of our sin in order to experience the joy of God's grace. And Jesus is saying, open it up. Bring it out into light. Because only when you open it up, only when you die to your pride and open it up, will you be able to experience life. Last week I mentioned that Paul Miller introduced the the concept of the J-curve. It says that our life is a series of little J's that we feel like we're dying to something, and, but it's only when we've died to something and believe that we then are able to experience new life, a different understanding, a different perspective, a joy that makes no sense despite what we've just lost and opens up new opportunities for us. And our whole life is experienced with Death of relationships, death of opportunities, death of time, death of, death of body, death of abilities. A bunch of deaths that we want to just keep covered up and move on and not deal with them. And Jesus says, deal with them. Open it up. It'll stink. But it's through that. When you die to that fear, you will find life if you believe that I am the resurrection and the life. And we experience Jesus' declaration all over again. And this is what Jesus wanted them to see. We see that's evident in, in the prayer that he offers. We see in verse 41 and 42. And so we see this. So they took away the stone and, uh, the, a stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now that's interesting because it's the opening of the prayer. Past tense, you have heard me. But these are the first words he's offered so far as we know. And what that suggests to us and indicates to us is that Jesus had been talking about this long before he shows up on the scene, long before anybody thought there was any reason for hope or just weirdness. God was already aware. God had already heard from Jesus. God was already at work. And we need to know that not only from this circumstance, but our own suffering as well. Because the fact that he's saying, I thank you that you have heard me, means Jesus is already dealing with it before anybody is aware. And God has already heard. And Jesus says the reason why he prays this way in verse 42. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. See, we need to know what they needed to know. 
which is that God already knows, and God already cares, and God is already at work to bring something out of your life. He is working to accomplish his purpose, and your purpose, your joy, my joy, is found when we are aligned with God's purpose, which unfortunately requires, because of our sin and because of the brokenness of the world, a series of little deaths in this life that we would rather not experience, but what we see as death, God sees as an opportunity for his glory and even more life. And it's quite evident that we see in this passage. And so far we've seen in this passage, and we'll, we'll look just one more at a moment, one more phrase in a moment. But in the midst of our suffering, we need to remember God cares, even if he seems to be distant. And God is at work to accomplish his purpose even before we are aware of it. Last phrase. I would say, let him loose. And we would see that in verse 44. So as we move into this portion of the text, after the prayer is offered, we're told Jesus stands before the tomb and with a loud voice declares, Lazarus, come out. And there's an old Puritan who said that Jesus had to say Lazarus, otherwise everyone in the grave within hearing distance would have come out. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but it certainly is a, an appropriate tribute to the power of God that is in Jesus Christ. What we do know is this. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus came out. And I love the description, which is not always common in Hebrew literature. The details that they give came walking out, dead man walking, still wrapped up like a mummy, like a zombie coming out in a mummy. And we're told that it's, you know, he had the linen around his hands and his feet, and, and it was binding him tight. And then his face was wrapped as well. So, you know, essentially head to toe, he has these strips of linen, and he's walking out it's like a... You know, Halloween horror film. Jesus says to them, to the people then, unbind him. And so they go and they unwrap him. And we see a couple of principles there that are important for us to understand from this passage. The first principle that we need to understand is this, is that life came to Lazarus because Jesus declared it with no help from Lazarus or anybody else. And the reason that's important is we sometimes get confused as to about how God works in salvation, which we are told is a description of us moving from spiritual death into be made alive. And some of you may have heard the illustration that salvation and the gospel being offered works like this, is that we are like dead people that are floating out in the ocean waiting for a raft, somebody to drop a lifeline to us that we can grab hold of so that we can be saved, Right? Except there's a problem with that illustration, at least from a biblical standpoint. Biblical standpoint says that we are dead in our sins. Which means if you're going to use the same imagery, they're not out there on a raft waiting for something to happen. You're out there doing the dead man float. And in my imagination, as dead people rarely reach up and grab a hold of things to help in their own salvation. Somebody from the outside must save them, must do something. And that's what Jesus does. It is God's power alone that declares that which is dead to be made alive. We see it physically here with Lazarus, and it's the same experience that anyone who is in Christ has experienced moving from being spiritually dead to being made alive simply because it was declared. We don't participate at all in that. What we do get to participate is in this. After Lazarus was made alive, and Jesus says, unbind him, 
we see some pregnant imagery there. The reality is we come into this life often still bound by our past sin. We're uptight. We're wound way too tight. And the purpose of the church, the purpose of each other, is to let them loose. Help people to shed those, to be unbound. We do that by re, not only by praying for one another, by reminding one another of God's grace, of God's love, of God's goodness that has set us free. But that's what Jesus has declared here. And those are two very important principles that we see from this in the way that salvation, in the way that we're made, and, and the role that we have in the overall work. But there's another principle that is here, that if we look at it, that actually may be more pertinent to some of us if we are in the midst of suffering. And that principle is this. God seems to do this in his own time, not on anybody else's timetable. See, when did Mary and Martha want Jesus to come? Well, as soon as they sent for him, knowing that their brother was sick so that he wouldn't die in the first place. And Jesus' response, God's response to that was not to come when they wanted him to, but even delayed a little more, coming even later than they would have anticipated. He had a plan. He was going to work things out. But he does it according to his time, not according to our time and expectations. And the reason that that is important is because sometimes when we are in the midst of suffering, and there is no specific timetable, it's not like, okay, three days or four days as we have here. But at some point or another, we get very tired. We may have hope for a time, but when time reaches at some point, we reach our max, we assume God's not doing anything. Where is God? But when we understand these three principles that are all illustrated in this passage, it makes a world of difference. See, one of the things we've seen very clearly, Jesus wept, God cares. God is doing something behind the scenes that is not only for your good, but for the good of everyone who is around you, everyone called according to his purpose, using your suffering or even death. And when it seems that God is doing nothing, we need to be reminded that God doesn't do things on our timetable. He does his purpose according to his own. And so when we have run out of patience, it doesn't mean that God is not at work. And so in the midst of our suffering and our feeling left alone, we are able to remind ourselves and remind each other that. Reminding each other of that is a way of unwrapping and participating in the lives for one another. This doesn't answer all the questions that we might have about where is God and what is God doing in our sufferings. We may have many more specific. But if we know that God does care, that God is at work, and he will finish his work in his time for the benefit of us and for all others. We know that he is the resurrection and the life, and those principles help us to believe that makes a tremendous difference. Despite our suffering, we have hope. We have comforts. We may even worship. May God grant us that perspective. May he use us to encourage each other to remind one another of this truth. Father, may you speak to our hearts. May you embed these principles and these truths from this story into our minds that we may be comforted and we may be comforters as we await and watch to see what you are doing for your glory and for the good of your people. We thank you, Lord, that you do love us, that you do care, you do feel our pain, that you are at work, not only in this life, but in the life that is to come.
We praise you. We bless you. In Christ, amen.